there's a difference between good sleep and bad sleep. I think we all have experienced this, uh, this difference. There are periods in our life where some of us get better sleep than others. Um, but so often, so much of society kind of pushes us in this direction of bad sleep. I remember this um, workout video Alina and I once watched, like right after we were married. And this, this woman was doing this like really weird exercise. And she was saying, now remember to clench your abs for the other six hours you're awake. Um, I was like, wow, I bet I would be, I'd be in great shape if I was sleeping 18 hours a night. That'd be, that'd be awesome. That'd be that ideal. You know, so often it's amazing that night you get good rest when you wake up and you're like, look at the day. And it seems like there's, there's butterflies flying around you and the little birds from Snow White are just going around. It's like, wow, what if this was every day? And then it's like three more weeks before you get another good night's sleep. Um, so often our, our children are trained to get bad sleep. They're trained to like, you know, stay up as late as possible. And this is the only time you can see your friends. And then if you're not staying up with your friends or on the screens constantly, it's like you have to study and study and study. And they go to college and there's no one to tell them to go to bed. And they spend all nighters. I had a, a Bible study when I was an undergrad called 4 a.m., that met at 4 a.m. <laughs> on a Thursday night. It was intentional. I wanted it to be hard for people to be there. It was, it was, inter- that was an interesting time in my life. <laughs> but then, you know, then you finish college and you're like, stay up late. Like, what am I doing with my life? Like, what, I have to be an adult now. When you think about it, you don't get good sleep. And then if you, you know, um, you, you meet someone maybe and you get married and you have a kid. And then it's like the worst sleep ever. <laughs> And you're thankful for like 30 minutes. Or sometimes you learn to sleep standing up, leaning against the wall. Um, when I was hiking, I, I never got any good sleep. You don't get good sleep when you're hiking a lot and your body's constantly in pain. But my adjustment to this was I just judged lying down as sleep. And so if I counted all the hours lying down as sleep, I felt better about myself. I was like, well, I got 12 hours of sleep last night. I was unconscious for about one. But it was a full night's sleep. Um, a lot. It's hard. It's hard to get enough sleep. We can tell ourselves that we want. I'm going to go to bed early tonight. I'm going to go to bed early, um, and it doesn't happen. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to start the day strong. Um, all the things. And then, like you know, our body starts hurting, and sometimes we have to use the restroom. At times, we did it once. Sleep is hard to come by. That was a lot on sleep. <laughs> But so often, our lives are seeking moments of rest and peace, moments of wakefulness. So just like our physical body is seeking rest, it's seeking a place of security, of comfort, a time, like our souls seek rest. Our souls seek to be in a place of peace. We seek purpose in our life. We seek relationships in our life that are life-giving. The whole world does. It's not just the people in this room. Everybody is seeking a purpose, seeking something meaning-making in their life. St. Augustine, in his book, The Confessions, which, if you remember from my Ask Me Anything series, it was the book that I said I would recommend to everybody. Um, In the very beginning, he has this famous line where he says, "Um, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. Which is like, I, I think about that a lot. It's a guiding thing. It wasn't until this week, and I'm going to totally nerd out on you, just a warning, um, that I checked the Latin of this. 
So the Latin is, so for all of, all of us who, who remember our Latin from school, in quietum est cor nostrum donet requiescat in te. And so, yeah, obviously, yeah, it's really interesting, right? Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't use the same word. It's not um, rest. Sylvia, okay? Is everyone good? We feel on? All right. Okay. Okay, I'm going to keep on going. We're going to rest. Um, he doesn't say, I'm going to rest until I rest, or our heart is restless. It's unquiet. It's worried. Our hearts are worried. Our hearts are stressed. Our hearts are dis. Quiet. Our hearts are just quiet. Like, okay. Can we? Something's weird. Yeah. Hi, it's me. I know. Can we? Can we mute it? No. Okay. I That's can right. leave. No, no, no. God. <laughs> <laughs> you are awesome. It's mute. Okay. When I suck in a breath of oxygen, it makes a sound like. Well, we are gonna love you and love that sound. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. It's really, it's pretty apt for, for our disquietness <laughs> of, of those times, of not knowing. But it's very, so our hearts are worried, are, are stressed, our hearts are not content. It's not that we are tired until we are with God. We are, we are disquiet. We are seeking. We are worried until we find our peace with God. And that may be, we don't know where that is going to be. My brothers and sisters, we are finishing our series on the good news. Amen. The beeping stopped. <laughs> on the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, that God's good news is not just one story for each of us to appropriate. It's not just one direction that you have to be, you must receive this or that's it. And I'm out. That we receive the good news of Jesus Christ from different vantage points. And often different vantage points in our life. That when we hear the good news of Jesus as a child, we receive it differently than as an adult. And as we age, we hear it differently. God doesn't change, but we change. And we see God's message in a different way. Two weeks ago, I spoke on this passage from 2 Timothy, where um, Paul says, God is the one who saved and called us with a holy calling. This wasn't based on what we have done, but it was based on God's own purpose and grace in Jesus Christ. And this, this version of the good news of Jesus Christ shows us what John Wesley calls prevenient grace, the grace that comes before that God loves us from before we even do anything, and there's nothing that we can do to earn God's love. That we are loved before we act, and all we do is respond, and that is good news. That you don't have, you don't have a test in life to prove God's love, to earn God's love. You don't have to look at your bank account or look at your tally of the good things you've done to see whether or not God loves you. God already loves you, and that is good news. Last week, we looked at uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it speaks about how once we were alienated from God and how we need to admit that alienation in order to receive grace sometimes. That in order to be saved, you must be saved from something. You must be saved from something. So often, many of us act as if we don't need to be saved, that life is okay without God, and then God's presence in our lives slowly diminishes. And we think we have it all figured out. And we end up as the rich man with the storehouses. And we think to ourselves, soul, look at all my stuff. Isn't that great? Um, and then that night, it's all taken away. That is, that is what happens so often when we don't realize and give thanks to what God has done. Today, we're looking at this amazing passage of, that Jesus says from Matthew 11 that Kathy Beth read to us. Come to me, all you 
who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. And again, I'm giving out these nice handy cards um, just so you can take these home. And part of this is, is hopefully one of these different versions will resonate more with you. That so often, like, good news or the gospel may seem like something for someone else to talk about, but it's, it's for you. As well, it's not just for you, it's for the world. And so how we speak of God's good news for us and for the world, we need words to say that. That's what Scripture gives us in different ways. So hopefully one of these resonates with you. Matthew, before we get to this um, 11, verse, verse 28 through 30, Matthew 11 starts in a really odd place, as it usually does. When you look at the Bible in the beginning of a chapter, it's usually like, huh, that's interesting. Um, so Matthew 11 starts that Jesus says, it says, when Jesus finished teaching his disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in cities. So he's done, he's gathered his disciples, he's done his Sermon on the Mount, he's done a lot of the teaching, and now he's sending people. He's going, he's going himself to teach. And at first, his first point of contact is he's asked about uh, John the Baptist. And he's asked, are you the one John was speaking of? And then he says, um, in normal Jesus fashion, Go, go report to John what you hear and see. Those who are blind are able to see. Those who are crippled are walking. People with diseases are cleansed. Those who are deaf can hear. Those who are dead are raised up. The poor have good news proclaimed to them. And so that's, that's a pretty solid response, I would say, for Jesus for that. And then he goes on, he keeps on talking about John the Baptist and about calling the kingdom of God. And then he has this nice, um, this really harsh Harsh tone, Jesus gets into in verse 16, where he says, To what will I compare this generation? It is like a child sitting in the marketplace is calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. For John came, and he didn't act like everybody else, and the people's response was, Look at him. He's weird. Look at him. Yet the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunk. But wisdom is proved wise by his words. And then he gets really harsh. He begins to scold the cities where he has done his miracles. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have changed their hearts and lives. They would have changed... Their hearts and lives. Okay, so this is what happens before this, you know, wonderful passage. So it's not like Jesus is going this like nice, nice, happy parable, happy parable, happy parable, come to me. It's like, whoa, people have not been listening and paying attention. The peace that Jesus offers, the yoke Jesus offers, is not on this continuation of nice responses. It's at the end of a series of woes. Whoa. A series of scolding in this translation. How terrible it is for you, Bethsaida. And then he gets to where, where Kathy Beth began in verse 25. And he says this prayer, which is kind of passive-aggressive. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have shown them to the babies. Just a little bit. It's okay. Um, but but it's, it's an amazing thing, he's saying. This is something that we have struggled with, the church has struggled with since then. I praise you for withholding it from the wise and intelligent, but offering it to babies. This is something, um, in the early, early church in that time, there was this th- um, these sects called Gnostics. 
Agnostics come, come in the news every once in a while. Every five or ten years, there's a new Gnostic text that comes out. It's like, newly discovered, Jesus was married and had 13 kids. Um, and it's a manuscript from about usually the second century, oftentimes in Coptic, this ancient Egypt, Egyptian language. And it was, it was usually from that period, but it has very little to do with the Jesus Christ we worship. It comes from a Gnostic sect, and Gnostics believed that the creator of the universe was this evil, horrible god called the Demiurge, and that Jesus was a different god, um, and came. And Jesus' Jesus's message is for those who are smart enough to get it, and for those who are really clever. And it's basically, this is like the secret society. This is the Illuminati. This is the Masons in that kind of secret society way, controlling in the background of the world. That's what the Gnostics are. They have a bunch of secret handshakes. They have all sorts of words like that. Um, but it's only for the select few. And so they have this sales pitch. Hey, do you want to be a Gnostic? Um, yeah, I don't know how much. Yeah, but that's, that's the Gnostics. And that's what Jesus is, is kind of arguing against. That God's word and God's offering of life is not for just the wise. God's offering of life, God's good news, is not for people who are the most intellectually capable of getting it. Because it's not just about intellectual ascent. It's not just about this moment in your life where you're like, okay, yesterday, I didn't think God existed, but today God exists. But I'm going to keep on doing everything I did yesterday. That's not what Jesus is offering. And that's not who he came to preach and to serve. So he says, I thank you, God, that, that you didn't just send it to the wise, but to the child. Indeed, Father, this brings you happiness, that your word is to the children. My father has handed over things to me. No one knows the son except the father, and nobody knows the father except me. And that's when he gets, come to me, all you who are struggling. All you who are struggling hard and heavy with burdens, and I will give you rest. All of us in times are struggling, are being challenged. As I said two weeks ago, we spoke about uh, prevenient grace, the grace that comes before last week in the, in the, the good news about being al- once being alienated from God and now being reconciled with God is what John Wesley calls justifying grace. The grace that sets us upright, that sets us right with God. The point, the moment when we realize that we are loved. It was the moment that John Wesley felt on Aldersgate Road when he realized I, even I, am loved by God. And he, his life turned around after that. But today, I want us to read this passage from Matthew. Come to me, all who are struggling hard and heavy loads, and I will give you rest. As a moment of of sanctifying grace, of the grace that makes us holy, because the grace that makes us holy is this journey of following Jesus, is this journey of adding the yoke that is light. Even though when we look at it on the ground, it doesn't look too light. When we look at the, the practices of Christian discipleship, so often from afar, it looks like really hard. Fasting looks really hard. Tithing looks really hard. Praying, going and feeding the hungry looks really hard. But when we put on the yoke, it is light. And in order to put on the yoke of Jesus, we've got to take off the yoke of the world. And we have to take off those burdens that seem a lot lighter but they just build up and build up the burdens of keeping up with the Joneses, the burdens of of looking at our life and judging our life by our bank account, the burdens of judging our life by how we live and where we go. It adds up over and over and over. Instead, Jesus offers something else. 
And that offering isn't just for the wise and the smart, isn't just for the select few, isn't just for the secret society. And that's where we get to the passage from 2 Timothy that Kathy Duff read. Um, and especially 2 Timothy 3.16, which is this really famous, um, all scripture is inspired, all scripture is God-breathed. And the power of that, the power of the inspiration of scripture, is that it frees it from control. It frees the Bible that God offers grace to everybody. That we each have an avenue to meeting Jesus. It's not just for the select few who know the secret handshake. That's not what God's grace is about. It is being offered to all of us. We have a way to meet the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is good news. God speaks in the life of Jesus Christ. We see that life in this book. We see the life of God revealed here. We listen to it. We listen to the words of Jesus and we can respond together. That's what being the church is, is responding to the words of Jesus together. Picking up that yoke that from a distance looks so heavy, looks so hard, and putting it on and realizing together it is even lighter. It is light when we put it on just ourselves. When we, each of us put it on, it is even lighter. When we are doing the things of God together, it is even lighter. Are you tired? Are you tired? Are you worried? Are you stressed? Are you hurt? One of the things about, about, that's hard about faith sometimes is that we may come to a mountaintop. We may come to a moment where we see God and then we come down that mountaintop and we still have burdens in our life. We still have hardships. We still have people in our life whom we miss, whom we lose. We still have diagnoses that we don't think is very fair. We still have phone calls that we don't really want to pick up. We still have these burdens. We still have to lay them down. Even after accepting that we are loved, even after accepting that God has loved us from the beginning, even after accepting that we are made right with God, we still have those burdens. We've still got to set them down. And that is how, that is what happens when we answer the call, when we continue to answer this call. Come to me. Come to me is not a one-time call, but an all-time call. From all eternity, Christ is beckoning us. Come to me. All who are heavy burdened. And each of us at a different time are heavy burdened, and each of us can answer that call. So what does it mean? How do we respond to the call of Jesus? How do we come to him? By doing the things of God. By doing those things of God together, by doing what John Wesley calls the, the means of grace, the works of mercy and the works of piety. By worshiping together. This is one of the ways of answering the call of Jesus by taking that time on a Sunday morning when we could be sleeping in and getting that good sleep is coming here in the morning and saying, no, praising God is more important. I'm going to prioritize that in my life. Worshiping in song. It's practicing the sacraments together. Baptizing our people together like we did last week with Malcolm. Baptizing the children in our lives and saying, you are claimed by God. Praying together is a way of answering the call. Praying on our own. Of saying, I could be doing 15 other things that don't mean anything, but I'm going to pray right now. I have all of the stimuli everywhere. But I'm going to take the time that is useless in the world's eyes. And just say, God, I'm here. St. Augustine 
says about prayer that we don't pray in order to get what we want or get what we need. God already knows that. God already knows what we want and what we need. Um, the point of prayer, the point of the intercessory prayer where we lift up, in a little bit, we'll lift up the people in our congregation, is to change our desires. It's to change our hearts so that we continually desire what God desires. To change who we are so that we are answering this call of Jesus. Prayer, the practices of God, shape our desires so that we long to be with Jesus. That's what the, the yoke that is light does. When we put on that yoke that is light, we realize that the yoke of the world is just not that important and not that interesting. Um, it's kind of boring, really. And the, but it takes shape over time. We respond to God by the works of, of mercy, by feeding the hungry, by clothing the naked, by looking at our neighbor and seeing a child of God and not a problem that's getting in the way of our day. By seeking God in our neighbor. We respond to the call of God with how we spend our money and how we offer ourselves to God. That's the way the, our stewardship campaign, our pledge card, fits in with this integrally. And it does, and you can't get away from it because either Jesus is Lord of your life or he is not. And so often, the biggest yoke of this world is the yoke of money, is the yoke of what do I need to do to have a happy life in this constant quest of how can I find satisfaction with my money? How can I move my money around? How can I go to the best restaurants? How can I save up for the best vacation? How can I spend all of this for the best so I can have the best? Instead of taking the time to look at the offering that God has given us, that all of these are a gift from God, that a pledge to the church offers us an opportunity to reorient ourselves, because that's what it comes down to is that when Christ calls, he calls us for a changed life. And the cha- that's what good news does. Good news is a moment of change, of conversion, of going one way in our life and then going another. And that may happen from, from before we are aware of it in God's provenient grace. That may happen like a lightning bolt. And that happens continually, that we are continually conformed. Because the path of God... Like, let's say the path of God is, is right here on the end. That so often we're walking along, we veer. We all veer. I'm a walking veerer, and so if I'm walking with you, I mean, I'm with you, I don't walk in a straight line in general. Um, but that's what happens in the Christian faith. Is we, we so often, all of us, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how holy you are or how you see yourself as unholy, we're all going to veer. The point of, of grace is God calls us back. The point of church is that we pull each other back. We hold each other's hand when we see the other veering. We bring back to the focal point that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that changes everything and offers us hope. And so so this is like there is a holy thing going on here, my brothers and sisters. There is good news. And that good news comes all the way down to our pocketbooks, to those things that it's awkward for preachers to talk about. But what we are doing here at this church is good. And God is present here. And we can participate in that. We have an opportunity to reorient our lives, each of us. And I encourage you to take that. That we are not, you're not going to be saved by giving money to the church. Thank God. Because then only the rich could be saved, right? 
God doesn't offer that salvation. So often it's presented in that way. It's presented that unless you get a lot of money that you can start your own nonprofit and solve malaria, you're not going to be a good person. Instead, God says that you are loved from the beginning. Instead, God admits you are burdened, my brothers and sisters. I can see the burdens on your back. Set them down. Come to me. Your heart has been restless. I've seen where your heart has been chasing. Your heart is like the dog from the movie Up. Squirrel! (laughs) My heart is. I don't know about yours, but my heart is. And God sees that and says, Come to me and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.